What time is it? What time is it? Time is it? Time is it? Time is it? Howdy, and welcome to the ABI 1.0 podcast. I'm your host, Terry Thompson, or should I say tour guide most of the time. This is part two to our unconventional look at war. I actually carefully phrased that. Uh, there is unconventional warfare, and then there's an unconventional way to look at warfare, and that's what we're attempting to do. We can continue on by, well, looking at military training. You gotta show them what to do. After all, not everybody's a born soldier. I don't give out too many special treats, but this morning, we have a very special treat. Private Swafford here is going to play Reveille for us. Okay, Swafford, play Reveille. Oh, I don't have a bugle. You don't have one? I don't have a bugle. No, 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 no. You better play it with your mouth. What? I said play it with your goddamn mouth. I love that tone. Sounds good to me. My morale is lifted. You know any Stevie Wonder? You know, you are the sunshine of my life. You are the sunshine of my life. we got here a fucking comedian private joker i admire your honesty hell i like you you can come over to my house and fuck my sister <clears throat> you little scumbag i got your name i got your ass you will not laugh you will not cry you will learn by the numbers i will teach you now get up get on your feet you had best unfuck yourself or i will unscrew your head and shit down your neck Everything is beautiful in its own way. Military recruit training, commonly known as basic training or boot camp, refers to the initial instruction of new military personnel. It's a physically and psychologically intensive process which resocializes its subjects for the unique demands of military employment. training goes, we have no further to look than the Roman army, which had one of the best win-loss ratios in history. For over a thousand years, the Roman legionnaires and their auxiliary forces dominated the European, African, and Asian battlefields. Each legion had around 5,000 men, 
On average, 120 veterans retired every year after 25 years of service. Discipline was one of the pillars of the Roman army. Each soldier had to be disciplined enough to act in the interests of the entire unit. Ability to fight as a unit enabled the Romans to beat numerically superior forces. The recruits quickly learned that falling asleep during a night watch or not wearing a sword while building a camp was punishable by death. They also learned to blindly obey their commanding officers. That for the Roman army had to be healthy, fit, tall, and a Roman citizen. If he survived the four-month-long trial, he would swear an oath of loyalty and receive a tattoo for easier identification. He would become a Roman soldier. Yet, this would only be the beginning of 25 years of arduous military life. From the selection process and basic training, we can easily see why the Roman legionnaires were such a deadly force on the battlefields of iniquity. Being a soldier in the Roman army was serious business. If you fail to RSVP to war, they tend to enforce the invitation, and it usually starts off with correspondence saying, Greetings! Whoever came up with that one had a sick sense of humor. With the war in Vietnam as a backdrop and the futures of some 850,000 young men on the line, the lottery featured a bin containing 366 capsules, one for each possible birthday. The order in which their birthdays were drawn from that bin would determine the order in which those young men would be drafted. First chosen, first to serve. Congressman Alexander Perney of New York drew the first number. September 14th. Capsule by capsule, date by date, the board filled up. December 6th. Finally concluding with June 8th as number 366. Statisticians soon cried foul, arguing that birth dates near the end of the year had inadvertently been clustered toward the top of the bin, making them more likely to be drawn first. Fair or not, as events played out, only men with birthdays numbered 1 through 195 were ultimately called to duty. Men with the remaining 171 birthdays were home free. America ended the military draft in 1973 and has relied on voluntary enlistment ever since. <laughs> I'm just a typical American boy from a typical American town. I believe in God and Senator Dodd and in keeping old Castro down. And when it came my time to serve, I knew better dead than red. But when I got to my old draft board, buddy, this is what I said. Sarge, I'm only 18, I got a ruptured spleen and I always carry a purse. I got eyes like a bat and my feet are flat and my asthma is getting worse. Oh, think of my career, my sweetheart dear, my poor old invalid aunt. Besides, I ain't no fool, I'm a going to school and I'm a working in a defense plant. I got a displated disc and a racked up back, I'm allergic to flowers and bugs. And when the bombshells hit, I get epileptic fits and I'm addicted to a thousand drugs. I got the weakness woes, I can't touch my toes, I can hardly reach my knees. And if the enemy came close to me, I'd probably start to sneeze. 
Now, normally this would be a perfect opportunity to get off into the anti-draft and anti-war movements over the years, but I think I'll save that for another episode. We'll call it peace, or something like that. I just know it's a whole different area of research. There's an abbreviation that gets thrown around, especially when it pertains to the military. It's known as KISS, K-I-S-S, which stands for uh, Keep It Simple Stupid. Well, some of the most effective weapons in war in the past have been simple. And keep it that way. <laughs> you don't want it to go all foobar. Peeler was almost always carried as a useful spear or pre-charged javelin. Once again, soldiers drilled with weighted weaponry to strengthen their muscles and practice accuracy against wooden posts. Another weapon which was just as common but rarely gets talked about was the sling. Lightweight and deadly, it was an extremely useful tool which granted heavy infantry greater flexibility in battle. Munition could literally be picked up off the ground, but more commonly would be formed by pouring lead into a simple mold. Soldiers seemed to have fun with this by carving crude messages into sling stones with phrases like, suck this, Octavius, or for Pompey's ass." Then came the 20th century version of the slingshot hit through a lot more lead in a very economical way. Of all the weapons in the vast Soviet arsenal, nothing was more profitable than Oftimod Kalashnikova, model of 1947, more commonly known as the AK-47 or Kalashnikov. It's the world's most popular assault rifle, a weapon all fighters love. An elegantly simple nine-pound amalgamation of forged steel and plywood. It doesn't break, jam, or overheat. It will shoot whether it's covered in mud or filled with sand. It's so easy, even a child can use it, and they do. The Soviets put the gun on a coin. Mozambique put it on their flag. Since the end of the Cold War, the Kalashnikov has become the Russian people's greatest export. After that comes vodka, caviar, and suicidal novelists. One thing's for sure. No one was lining up to buy their cars. For better insight into the reasons for so many conflicts all over the world, we turn to our geopolitical analyst, Skidmark, the man on the street. Literally, he lives on the street. Skidmark. You understand politics, you think you understand political parties, you're all full of crap, you don't know what the Illuminati is, if you're Republican or you're Democrat, you're wrong! Why? It's this easy. It's called divide and conquer. That's why there's two parties and only two. And they're controlled by the same people at the very top who belong to the Council of Foreign Relations, the Bilderberger Group. They also belong to the Trilateral Commission. And you people don't even know what the hell that is. But if you did know, you would know that these are the people that control your world by making global policies that you never vote on and by which parties both serve and belong to these organizations and control your world. Now... Here's how it works. Really easy. Divide and conquer can only work if the people that are divided are not aware of the falsely created division. If you're not aware of it, then it works. If you know about it, then it don't work no more. 
if you have socialism without capitalism, it becomes communism. If you have capitalism without socialism, it becomes fascism. And it's just that easy. That's all you need to know. That's why Masonic symbols are all over your freaking money. But you don't pay any attention. Ridiculous. It seems as though if you're low on the totem pole uh, in society, your beliefs don't carry much credibility. Although some presidents of the United States had problems getting their points across, I'm speaking of President Dwight D. Eisenhower, Ike. He tried to warn us in his farewell speech. Skidmark might just be onto something. The message of leave taking and farewell. This speech did not get very much attention. When a new president is coming to power, as John Kennedy was, the spotlight was not on Dwight Eisenhower. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. There was a feeling at the time that this must have been written by some speechwriter who just sneaked into the speech. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. Three months ago, uh, we got contacted by a family up in Minnesota saying that we have documents from Malcolm Moose. He was responsible in part for drafting the military-industrial complex speech. These new papers give us written evidence that this was not just some caprice of Eisenhower's or something by some speechwriter. You see the evolution of his speech from, from May 1959 to uh, 1961. And he wanted to give this speech for a long time, two years. Our military organization today bears little relation to that known of any of my predecessors in peacetime, or indeed by the fighting men of World War II or Korea. There was one person in Dwight Eisenhower's life whom he really confided almost everything to, and that was his brother Milton. There's one particular document where the speechwriters had already drafted their version of his speech, only to see uh, Milton come along and totally revamp what had already been, been written. When Milton Eisenhower was uh, taking notes and writing things on the drafts of these speeches, the speechwriters knew that it wasn't Milton talking, it was Ike. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. He would see magazines with advertisements for some you know, new warplane or some bomb, and he got so angry he'd take the magazine and throw it into the fireplace of the Oval Office because he felt that defense spending should not be something that would be encouraged by companies who are seeking commercial gain. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. There is an interesting document. It shows that the farewell speech would be made to Congress. But yet, President Eisenhower decided, no, he was going to address the people. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. One test of how well a president speaks is how long the speech lives. Here we are 50 years later, we're still talking about this speech. Now, on Friday noon, I am to become a private citizen. I am proud to do so. I look forward to it. Thank you, and good night.
And it's worthy of mention that uh, Dwight Eisenhower, Ike, was a native Texan, born in Denison, Texas, October 14th, 1890, just a little bit ago. We'll look into how taking to the air changed the course of war when I return. I'm back here in Kentucky at the Wild Turkey Distillery, and I want to let you in on a little something. The folks here and I have created a new small batch bourbon, Wild Turkey Long Branch, refined with Texas mesquite charcoal for smoky sweetness. It is my favorite bourbon on the planet. Wild Turkey Long Branch. Real bourbon, no apologies. Seven million children suffer from asthma, more than any other chronic disease. Most asthma attacks are caused by allergic reactions to allergens, including those left behind by cockroaches and mice. In fact, 82% of U.S. households contain mouse allergens, and cockroaches are found in up to 98% of urban homes. How can you protect your family? Find out at PestWorld.org. A message from the National Pest Management Association and the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. in warfare yeah something was lacking all the wars before all the battles air power something that the modern armies of the world would know how to function without however it took uh, a few steps to get there man tried to fly for 5,000 years before he finally hit on the idea of the balloon the world's first balloon, the hot air mother. Amazing invention of two Frenchmen, the great Montgolfier brothers. The world's first passenger flight from Paris, France, November 11th, 1783. Sir Charles, famous French scientist, would attempt an ascension using a newly discovered gas called inflammable air. The world's first hydrogen balloon, 1783. And now the stupendous feat of combining the two types of balloon will be attempted. We invite your attention to Pilatre de Rossier of France. Strange name. And this 40-foot hydrogen balloon with a 10-foot hot air balloon beneath it. Too bad I could have warned him. He rises quickly, however, to about 3,000 feet and... 
the world's first martyr to aircraft experiment. Between the middle of the 19th century and the end of the 19th century, different kinds of people were trying to work out some way in which you could make a balloon dirigible. You could make it steerable. You could apply some power to it so it could move through the air under its own direction. The spherical balloon was the simplest to build, but soon aviators recognized that the elongated shape was the easiest to maneuver. In 1901, Alberto Santos Dumont flew his 110-foot gasoline-powered airship in a seven-mile trip from the outskirts of Paris to the Eiffel Tower and back in less than 30 minutes. While Santos Dumont was perfecting his designs in France, Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin was pursuing his dream in Germany. As a young army officer, the Count had come to the United States as an observer of the Civil War. It was while witnessing balloons in combat that his fascination with lighter-than-air flight began. Balloons and blimps are non-rigid airships. Zeppelin designed rigid airships. These aircraft were built with an internal metal superstructure. Hydrogen gas was contained in cells inside the structure. First flight of his LZ-1 in 1900 to the start of World War I, Count Zeppelin launched 25 different airships. Although most met with disaster, Ferdinand Zeppelin remained committed to his dream of airship travel. In 1909, the Count launched the world's first commercial airline, called Daylight. His airships flew over 100,000 miles, carrying more than 37,000 passengers on sightseeing excursions throughout Germany. Zeppelin's work had attracted the attention of the German military. The generals recognized the potential of the airship as the perfect vehicle to initiate a new type of warfare, strategic bombing. In 1915, Germany sent her airships on the first aerial raids against England. This was the first time in the history of mankind that an aerial vehicle had become an instrument of warfare. It seems with the advent of the airship, militaries had an excellent platform for observation of the battles below, and if need be, a way to deliver destruction from above. Or had this occurred earlier in man's history? Hmm. Have we had watchers who sometimes get actively involved? The evidence seems to suggest that something has occurred. Aurora, Texas, 1897. That's aliens and airships. Just saying. Sindh province, southern Pakistan. These ruins spanning 250 acres of the Indus River Valley represent one of the earliest civilizations in the world. Known as Mohenjo-Daro, this 4,000-year-old lost city was first uncovered by archaeologists in 1922. Mohenjo-Daro came to a height around 2000 BCE. 
for some reason, unknown reasons, it was totally wiped out. You know, the whole civilization vanished, uh, and we do not know why and how. When British archaeologists first excavated Mahanjodaro, what they found astonished them, and that was that people were just lying dead in the streets, sometimes uh, holding hands. It was like some terrible doom had just totally wiped out this entire city and everyone was just instantly dead. In 1979, British researcher David Davenport published startling findings about the demise of Mohenjo-Daro. He revealed that there was a kind of epicenter in the ruins, approximately 50 yards wide, where pottery, stones, and other objects were melted on one side. Many appeared crystallized and fused together, as though subjected to instantaneous extreme heat. Davenport concluded that this ancient civilization must have been destroyed by a nuclear explosion. By finding fused bricks, uh, vitrified walls, pottery vessels that had completely melted, and also skeletons that were calcified, and apparently some of them even still radioactive. He decided that Mahanjo-Daro had been nuked. In Mahanjo-Daro, you find some of the ruins which are simply melted stones, which means extreme heat must be enveloped to melt the stone. At that time, some thousands of years ago, we humans had no extreme heat, so it must have come from a weapon. How could a 4,000-year-old city have been wiped out by a weapon that wasn't even developed until the 20th century. Some believe the answer may lie in the ancient Hindu holy book, the Ramayana of Valmiki, which tells of epic battles with a monstrous weapon called the Brahmastra. Brahmastra is a weapon named after Brahma himself, God Brahma. It has a heat-seeking device put into it and also motion-detecting. The fallout from these weapons are reported in the Ramayana as lasting for months and years after the blast. People's fingernails were coming off, people's hair were falling off. Um, so it's got all the signatures of an atomic explosion. The descriptions of the aftermath of the use of the Ramastras sound just like descriptions of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But could such powerful weapons of mass destruction have existed on Earth thousands of years ago? And is it possible that the city of Lanka, where the ancient texts say the Brahmastra weapon was unleashed, was not a fictional location, but the site known today as Mohenjo-Daro? Those texts are chock full with extraterrestrials or the so-called gods having waged a war up in the sky that our ancestors actually witnessed. And more evidence of past nukes comes from the deserts of Libya. Libyan desert glass is thousands of years old and one of the challenges is figuring out how that glass was formed. We know you need high heat, high temperatures, high pressure. This yellowish-green glass looks vitrified. In fact, it's strikingly similar to trinitite, the quartz-like glass that was created after the atomic explosion at the Trinity test site in New Mexico. 
And one wonders if the Libyan glass is also a remnant from a nuclear explosion. And it is possible that nuclear blasts would have done it, but that would assume you had someone around with nuclear weapons. Is it possible that the Libyan desert glass was formed by the detonation of a nuclear weapon thousands of years ago? Ancient astronaut theorists say yes and claim evidence of such a powerful weapon being used is written in the texts of ancient Egypt. In the ancient Egyptian story in which Horus avenges his brother Osiris' death, he flies up into the heavens in a winged disc. And in the heavens, he encounters the enemies of Osiris and he chases them. And then Horus releases some kind of a terrible weapon that causes his enemies to first go blind and then deaf. This sounds like some devastating weapon that Horus unleashed. Is it possible that it was some kind of a nuclear weapon that he unleashed on them? Some may say that there's evidence that exists that uh, ETs may have had influence or downright interfered with the pre-Columbian cultures of the Americas. Giant megalithic stone heads. Figurines of what appear to be flying craft. And statues that evoke cultures found on the other side of the world. According to ancient astronaut theorists, it is this information that the Catholic Church sought to suppress when they attempted to destroy all traces of the Maya culture nearly 500 years ago. Now what's interesting is all these great ancient cultures, including the Mayan, seem to have knowledge of math and science, which we can't explain how they got this information. When you ask them, they always tell you it came from the gods. If the proof existed, not only of cross-Pacific migration, but also extraterrestrial visitation, many ancient astronaut theorists believe it would have posed a serious threat to a Catholic hierarchy steeped in the bigotry and intolerance of the Inquisition. But if this incredible theory is true, what then happened to the extraterrestrial visitors? Why did they come here, only to leave or go into hiding? Because of various wars going on, cataclysms, eventually these civilizations began to collapse as civilizations do and what happened in the end was the, the airships they stopped coming and then the extraterrestrial demigods pulled their technology back so we don't know what happened there with the extraterrestrials and where they went and so you have to wonder if they don't want us to know that they are here the extraterrestrials may have just decided, okay, humans on planet Earth have, have got the seeds of civilization. Let's just stand back and see what they do. In February 2018 through March 2019, archaeologists made a number of incredible discoveries just in the area of Mexico alone. Mayan artifacts were discovered in Teotihuacan, a location previously thought to have been inhabited only by the Aztecs. 200 more artifacts were found in a hidden cave under the Mayan site of Chichen Itza. And beneath dense jungles near Lake Pozcuaro, LiDAR scanning uncovered an ancient city the size of Manhattan. 
in the early 1990s. There were these science fiction stories that one day we'll be able to somehow look underneath the overgrown jungle. And sure enough, here we are, 20, 25 years later, and that technology now exists. Satellites are now able to look through the soil into the ground to see if other structures exist. Is mankind on an incredible threshold of discovery? One that will confirm that extraterrestrial visitation has occurred all over the world and for centuries. In the course of watching our own battlefields, we may have caught a glimpse of someone else watching. Yeah, we were watching the Watcher. This is a big day for people that want the truth about UFOs, UFO transparency. So let me just give you the basics. Some big sonic booms have happened. Our government is officially affirming to the American public that UFOs are real. They're unidentified, flying with impunity through our restricted airspace. And now we know from the release that George Knapp, my mentor in journalism, and I released that over a conflict zone, you have one of these spheres, metallic spheres. It's a UAP or UFO official designation by our military and intelligence community. So we wanted to share this. It is inherently unclassified, although it is contained within classified briefings, but the, the image itself is unclassified. So we can put it out, but this is happening on a daily basis off of east and west coast of the United States of America. But now we know this is the first time people get to see an official government filmed UFO or UAP as they call them from a conflict zone. For the cynic out there, is there any explanation where that is something that is not from a different planet, that is not unexplained? Oh, for, for sure. And that would be a huge lapse of intelligence. I'm not any one image, I'm not hanging my hat on it and saying I know for sure. I'm providing to the public with George Knapp additional data and information to be looked at. We don't know, but this is identified within our intelligence communities and the DOD and the Pentagon in official reports as a UAP, which means UFO, same thing. So of course, we don't know. Where are they from? Who's operating? What are their capabilities? What's the intent? How long has this been going on? It goes on to the back of recorded human history. So I, I'm not saying I know what's going on, that UFOs are from another planet. How would I know that? What I'm trying to do is report the news as a journalist to the American public and create UFO transparency so we can have rational scientific investigation and we can also have discovery of what the UFO presence on planet Earth means to us. for a country at war. Less predictable, though, is the sheer number of unidentified flying objects that have been spotted in the skies above Ukraine. 
According to a new paper published by Kiev's main astronomical observatory, there have been a lot of sightings this year. As the research states, we see them everywhere. The researchers divided the phenomena they observed into two different categories, cosmics and phantoms. They describe cosmics as very, very bright objects that are much brighter than the background of the sky, and phantoms as completely black objects that both don't emit radiation and absorb radiation that falls onto them. We might even have had possession of one of these orbs back in 1974 and not even known about it. <laughs> now, wouldn't that be something? Uh, has anybody checked to see if it rolled under the refrigerator or the couch, though? A very strange thing happened in May of 1974 when a Florida man named Terry Betts found on his island property this curious metal sphere, now known as the Betts Sphere. They took it home. They didn't know what it was. They thought it looked like a, a downed NASA satellite or maybe a Soviet satellite. So Terry just puts it in a windowsill for a couple of weeks. Then one day, he has a friend over, and as he's playing the guitar, the sphere suddenly starts to come alive. It starts making humming sounds, and it seems to be responding to particular notes played by the guitar. Then another thing he noticed is that if you put the sphere on the ground, it'll roll away from you and then roll back to the person who rolled the sphere initially. If you put it on a tabletop, it'll roll around the tabletop, but never off the edge of the tabletop. Then strange things started happening. Doors in their houses started slamming on their own, and they began hearing organ music in the house at night. And this started to really concern them. They had the military and NASA come and look at this sphere to see if it was some kind of military device or uh, some piece of a spaceship or something like that. Both of them said, no, we don't know what this is. Well, the Betts family decided to consent to further testing at the nearby Naval Station. And after X-raying the sphere, they found out that it wasn't hollow, that there in fact were two spheres within that sphere. It had magnetic poles. And these poles would shift and move around on their own accord. It would defy logic, how are these spheres moving? And they also noted that it was sending out radio waves. In the end, no one could ever explain it. So it was kept with the Betts family. And today we don't know where this sphere is, in fact. But you have to ask yourself, what was this strange metallic sphere? What was it made of? How could it do all of the strange things that it was doing? Where is the Beth Sphere today? And what information is it gathering and communicating back to whoever made this strange thing in the first place? That's what I want to know. Our government has probably learned a great deal about a sphere that has self-activating software and maybe has been sending and receiving to other intelligences the whole time. If they ever had a large dog, did anybody ever think to check the backyard? I know these large breeds and their balls. Why, I even had one that uh, buried a bowling ball. Played with it, too.
What we've got here is failure to communicate. Militaries aren't always destructive. Sometimes they can be very constructive. Uh, there are some projects that require a well-organized force to complete. And though each military branch has their own version of construction battalion, we're here to single out the Seabees. Yes, uh, the closest thing to a human fire ant colony I can think of. They're okay if you let them build in peace, but you go to stir them up. Well, if you've ever experienced fire ants, you can say the same thing about bees, I suppose. Uh, yeah, sea bees. But I'm a Texan. Had to throw a Texas sled in there somehow. Besides, I think fire ants are much worse. Worse than a bee, that is. Not a sea bee. <laughs> a sea bee, well, uh, you don't want to be... Their things go boom. they're born as well as made and with that this episode of our well rather unconventional look at war uh comes to a close unconventional in the fact we we follow the path wherever it leads and sometimes uh, it's a little strange <laughs> i said sometimes well i mean most times i'm rather surprised how often our little visitors from wherever come into play Maybe they've had a lot more to do with our wars than we want to give them credit for. Time will tell. We'll keep looking. Until next episode, when we look at Texas and war. Yeah. And it should be timely. I'll have try to have it out by Thursday. That's uh, Texas Independence Day. Remember the Alamo. See ya. 
everything that comes from the earth eventually returns. Even a 40-ton Antonov 12 cargo plane. No reason to get excited